Hello and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here. And I'm Brent Sanders. And we are two guys buying and building wonderful internet companies. Indeed. And today we were hoping to do a bit of a retrospective on a deal we lost. I don't know how far we want to go into the, the details. We're going to keep it vague, but we worked on a deal for about, what, four months. We had a letter of intent open in. That is probably the most indicative thing. It slowed down and started taking forever and specifically wanted to, to dig into one of the sticking points on this deal, which was a big question for a lot of folks out there that are doing this kind of work, which is an asset purchase versus an equity purchase. Colin, yes. what's the difference between assets? You're purchasing all the assets of the company and none of the liabilities. In an equity purchase, you're just buying shares of the company and, and assuming 100% ownership. Is there anything else? It's as simple as that. Pretty much. So equity, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent purchase. Often what we see is like the founders want to get out and, mm. but it's possible that they could roll equity. They could roll 10, 20, 30%. It's called like taking another bite at the apple. So many like smarter founders that really believe in their company will do that, but then it ties them in. Uh, but yeah, the distinction is asset purchases traditionally are easier. So you're just acquiring the assets that you want. You don't have to deal with any of the liabilities necessarily. And then the company that remains, uh, the founders or whatever, have to shut it down and deal with any liabilities that are left. Uh, so you could structure equity purchases and have a bunch of rules saying oh, they take responsibility for all liabilities and all that stuff. It's just a little more complicated. Yeah. Any attorney you talk to will, maybe not any attorney, but our attorneys generally have been very hesitant to get into an equity deal because it's like, the onus is then on you to identify all the things under the sun that could come back and bite you and carve those things out. Yes. Yeah. But so the issue is, uh, we'll get into the issue in more depth, but GDPR, so any European deal often has assignability or like change of control provisions that is prob that are problematic. Or it seems also with like enterprise customers, you'll have these change of control or assignment provisions where you'll basically be thrown into the fire of having to be approved again. And that could be like a two month process. And in a big company, you'll end up in procurement. And, uh, the way procurement often works is like they are incentivized to cut uh, software expenses. So they'll really deeply look at your contract and be like, ah, we actually don't use it or we don't use it as much as we currently are. You know, we'd love to cut you or cut you back to a smaller plan. So it's a uh, Kind of the game of you want to buy all the good stuff and you don't want to jeopardize anything in the transition. Yeah. It's a delicate balance. So the liability thing is huge. The idea that you have to go back to all your customers, depending on what type of software product you are, that might not be a big deal. I feel like if we have smaller businesses using it, you put up a modal, you put up some sort of electronic communication, but then this is where if you have larger enterprise clients, these written contracts is they're all really tricky and you have to have really clear and clean. I guess you, you need to have a really organized seller that has all those contracts still in order, knows who the, the contact people are. Because think about it, if you're buying a 10-year-old business or a five-year-old business, I mean, at, at these companies, getting a hold of these people are going to take time if they you know, perhaps don't still work at the company or as you said, getting in front of procurement, it's, you don't really want to say, Hey, I've been charging you this amount. And, and now's a great time to reevaluate completely give you an out. And furthermore, I, I don't know the rules around offboarding customers with GDPR, but generally the best practice is, is to offer a way uh, out with their data. So for some businesses that could be pretty intensive to then export all the data, give them everything, give them a way to take their data and, and walk, which is, is just a, a bummer. So it opens the door for all these like 
sure you're going to be saddled with more liabilities, but it could potentially hamstring your cash flow. Yeah. And then I think it really matters how much trust is involved in the deal. So you're always taking on risk and doing an acquisition. And anytime you lose trust, you just kill the deal. Like an asset deal, you just take the good stuff. You don't have to have as much trust in the counterparty, but an equity deal, you're taking on everything. So if there's some hidden thing that could bite you, it could be really problematic. And you really wouldn't want to go down that path unless you were, you know, trusted the counterparty and really understood the business. I guess one of the, one of the questions is how do you build trust in the 30, 60, 90 day period of the typical deal closing time frame. It's tough to know. It's, it's one of those things. It's like intrinsic. You, you either feel it or you don't. Yeah. I think it's history is like the best way to do it. Do people operate in a trustworthy manner over a period of time, whether each other or not, like people have public profiles or they have a history of operating in a space. And so the longer you've been around and the less you've screwed people over is probably the best way to look at it if you don't actually know the person. Going back to the GDPR aspect of this, is this specific to GDPR? I guess you could have, if you had something in your, if you're a US-based company, you technically do need to have, once you're big enough, you're going to have European customers and then you do fall under these GDPR rules. So it's, it almost applies to anybody who hits a certain scale, even I know Blinksale, we have a large amount of international customers. We have customers in Europe. We have customers in Australia, every continent. There's a, almost every continent. I don't know if we have any Antarctic Blinksale users, but we're all over the map. So it's, I don't even know that it matters whether it's European based or not. Yeah. At some scale, but then it's a question of like, how much value is at risk, right? Mm -hmm. If you're really big and you have 5% of your customers are in Europe, like Maybe you still go through with an asset purchase and you just notify them and you know, hopefully you don't churn folks. But yeah. yeah, at some point you're just always dealing with it. And uh, yeah, it's just a pain. It's yeah, like this whole process is much messier than I ever thought it would be from the outside. Yeah, it is. It's too bad. And, I, and hopefully that's something that changes. But looking at it from a you know best practices perspective, like if you take on a company, informing them of a change of control seems like a good idea. But again, you don't want to rock the the boat if you have contract with IBM or somebody like that, and they just need a reason to to take another look at costs. So I think as especially as we start to see in the future a down cycle where people are really trying to to cut on software costs, which I think everyone is doing, but I feel like COVID has actually turned the the table on. IT spend and, and things are, are going to be accelerating. But even still, everyone's trying to save money. That's their, that's procurement's jam. Yeah. So you want to talk about this uh, deal we lost and kind of the story of it? Sure. Yeah. Where should we start? So I could start with the introduction. We'll keep it vague. I'll tell you all the details that matter. So back in May, I was introduced to a company through a friend in Europe. And so another European company. And they had an offer on the table for a pretty low multiple. And he's this is this company is looking to sell. They have this offer on the table. If you're interested, I'm happy to connect you. So it's like, yeah, at that price, I definitely want to talk. So we made an offer after talking with them. There's maybe like 20% above that offer. And that was back in May. So for perspective, now it's November. And we got an LOI signed and we progressed. It was really slow to get information out of them. And, and they kept going back and saying, we got to go talk to our like minority investors and get it approved. It seemed to all be progressing all but very slowly. And then it came all the way to September 24th of this year, where they finally said, we're going to pass. We went to minority investors and they decided they want to you know, test the market again, see if we could raise venture capital. And I guess that whole time they did throw out the idea of like, 
do you really want to do majority control? Do you want to just do a you know minority investment? It was like, no, that's not what we do. And we're mm -hmm. only interested in majority. But this, we thought it was a dead deal. We didn't really talk about it anymore. It's like a bummer. We wasted a, you know, a good amount of time on it. And we were excited about it. But recently I talked to a competitor, another fund that acquires software businesses. And he's like, I know you guys were working in, on a deal in this like small country. You know, I just want to run it by you and see if it's the same deal. Cause there's probably not a lot of software companies for sale in that country. And it's the same deal. And so they seem to have passed on us and moved on to a competitor. And there's no overlap in when the discussions were happening as we compared notes, but it hurts. It's a bummer for sure. <laughs> My feelings were mainly hurt. That's basically it. I saw your message about this and it, we did lose the deal. So that's okay. But it was, and it's likely for economic reasons because I feel like we, maybe in economics, maybe they didn't like you, Colin. They probably liked <laughs> me, but no, I, in, in all seriousness, it's possible like we rubbed them the wrong way. I think that we started to get a little frustrated about how long everything took and uh, level of organization was difficult. Like they, we were facing this idea of asset first equity and then trying to audit these contracts. And it just didn't, we were getting conflicting views. People, one person would say this, another person would say something else. And it was very difficult because the person we were negotiating with was also distanced from the business. So he would pass us to uh, other operators and they would give us conflicting information. So the funny thing is that wasn't the, that was definitely a red flag, but that wasn't enough of a red flag to be like, all right, let's abandon this deal. Cause we still liked it. Uh, especially at, at the multiple we were looking at and it was, it seemed like a great fit for our playbook and what we could do with it. And anyways, yeah, I wasn't personally offended. I was a little hurt, but yeah, sad to see that opportunity go away. But I think in my head, I knew we had lost it. Once the velocity of conversation started to dip, I got a little nervous because I always, we've closed deals quickly and those, I don't know, there's something about velocity. The longer it goes, the it's like an inverse relationship to its ability to close. It just takes way too long. Absolutely. Yeah. I think time kills deals. Like the longer something is out there, the more likelihood there is that something pops up and kills it. So I don't know what killed it in this case. My three guesses would be price. They didn't like us or they didn't like our plan. So I do think our price was low, but it was above. So I guess the way to look at it is they did this to the previous offer as well. They found an offer that was higher. So I think that could be the case here. I don't know what the offer is on the table right now, but I would guess it's higher than ours. They didn't like us, which is possible. Although I don't think we did anything that offensive. So it seems unlikely or they didn't like our plan. So our plan basically, as we told the majority owner, was that they just hired a new CEO who I think it says something. If you own a company outright, you hire a new CEO and then you're like, now's the time to sell it. I want to get out of here. <laughs> so our plan was basically to be like, let that new CEO go and hire a new one, which seemed obvious, but maybe they didn't like that. And maybe they're more attached than we realized. Yeah. If we lost on price, that's okay. I don't feel bad about it. That's all. That's good for them. I'm happy they you know, are progressing on. What do you think? So looking at it retrospectively, like what went well? I feel like we, the tech side of things, the tech diligence and the tech sort of uh, diving into it was that was well organized. It it was a real clear case of the original founder got fed up and ha had done everything they could, being the individual like CTO, and then they brought in somebody new and it was a, a revitalized investment. It's just it was very I don't want to say typical, but like understandable and getting information 
from them was uh, on the tech side was great. That was that worked really well. What I, I think didn't work as well was just trying to unravel. Once we dug into this realization that we need to start a dialogue with every customer, which I think would have been, I was like, that's fine. We can do that. And even if some churn, we're still okay with it. Once we started getting those, trying to uncover those contracts, it was, it started to get very vague because there's, there's entries in a database of here are our customers, but then there's like these written contracts that we need to dig through and those and sift through. And those were like very unclear. And that was, once we started going through that, I was like, I don't know. And then things really started to slow down at that point. This is something I struggle with and I don't know what the answer is of sometimes it's just really hard to get information out of founders or whoever's selling the business and you can't twist their arm. You can't make them give you basic information. I don't know how to deal with that. And it could just like, we move at their pace and it dramatically slows down deals. Mm, Yeah. I wonder, I guess it's communication, right? It's like communication style and that's just going to jive differently with everybody. They've got their And especially I'll say this, like across the pond, it's just a different culture, whatever country it is, it's just a different culture, different society, and maybe different values and also different time zones. That also plays a factor. Unfortunately, I love, I work with people all over different time zones and I love when it works well, but I hate when it doesn't, it's just so painful if it doesn't. Yeah. I don't know if you you like getting Slack messages at three 30 in the morning that are like, Hey, can you chat? No, I (laughs) can't. Some people prioritize that and make it work. I am not, I'm, I'm a sleeper. I need my sleep. Yeah. I never sacrifice my sleep, but this week taking a number of calls after dinner time, just cause that's what it works out with, with negotiating with people in different parts of the world. Which I love. That's probably one of my favorite things about doing this work is the international aspect of it. Like, and from both the deal side and the tech side, it's that actually, ju- I don't know why, but that part of it really juices me up. And I, the idea of getting on a plane and visiting these people too. I can't wait till that becomes accessible. Who knows when that'll happen, but yeah. Our borders generally open by the way. I know this is a little off topic, but it's number. But yeah, I went to Ireland and that's all open. Most or all of Europe is opened. I'm going to Thailand in January, February. I don't know if I told you that. We booked no. our flights. That just opened up January 1st. Is that your I, honeymoon? It, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Much delayed honeymoon. So we're going there for two weeks, um, booked our flights. It's going to take 26 hours, I think, to go there, which is just nuts. It's going to be a long time on a plane. Wow. We figured like this is the time to do it. It's eight hours from Japan. So this is about the most remote you could go. We don't have kids yet. So take advantage of it. That's awesome. Yeah. Travel your, travel your ass off. That's the best. We did a lot of traveling before kids and we never took a honeymoon. We did a lot of traveling and honeymoon like vacations we definitely prioritize travel and i was always i'd still have the mindset like that's until i had kids i should say that's what you spend your money on is like travel those experiences are, are priceless so enjoy it i'm jealous and yeah I, i'm like getting a little bit of the cabin fever i'm ready to go i would love to to go visit some of the people that i work with on on the regular or all over europe all over you know different parts of the world uh just be i don't know why that seems like fun to me it's hey let's go you know, spend a week in, in South America or Brazil or wherever. I um, uh, do it. I, flights yeah. are super cheap still. I, I do think there's something with, uh, so after 9-11, security really tightened and never really loosened again. I think this is a situation where after COVID, all this like healthcare screening stuff is really tightening up. And I, I feel like it's never going to go away again. Where it was like, I got tested maybe three times, even though I'm triple vaccinated. 
to go to Ireland. And I feel like that's just going to be reality of like constantly getting tests to fly anywhere. So it's funny when I, before COVID, the SARS is related, I believe it's a respiratory disease and traveling in Japan, which I've been a handful of times is like, they were a, you see mask wearing there and that it's always been that way, but they were doing the medical screening. They had the cameras with the thermal imaging. And before COVID, I was like, this is crazy. This is so weird. Why would it seems a little extreme? And then you see what can actually happen in the, obviously the population density is much greater on a small Island. Yeah. I think that's going to be our reality of like, you know, mass and testing and it sucks everything that's like more and more friction to travel i don't think is great for society but i think that's what the reality we're looking at now so looking going back to this deal that we lost like the good we talked about the good and the bad what would you do on the next deal what would be the one point of improvement and i'll give you my answer right off the bat which is i think we need to just have a a much clearer deadline, like set deadlines. Okay. Here's our typical schedule. And it's almost like going through the RFP process. It's like from LOI to maybe creating other milestones. We need to finish tech diligence here. We need to finish contract diligence here and having a little bit more structure and then applying dates to those things. And Cause I think it probably adds a little bit more pressure and it would probably just, maybe it'll turn people off. However, I think we won't go and it's not like we late wasted a ton of time. We just, the duration of time. It's not like we were only working on diligence for four months. It was just lagging. But to me, setting timelines would just separate these, you know, misfires, I think. I, I like the idea of providing the structure, right? Because most entrepreneurs only go through this once or maybe a couple of times in their life. And we go through it all the time. So we should be the leaders here. Of, this is how it works. This is the dates we'd like to hit. My hiccup there, people do these like exploding LOIs and they said this LOI is only good for five days or something like that. <laughs> and it's always bullshit. <laughs> if you want yeah. the deal now, you're going to want it in seven days. And so you could set those kind of arbitrary deadlines and maybe that pushes things along, but it is you know mostly made up to me. And I guess I think you're definitely right that we are going maybe too much on the entrepreneur's like schedule and being super founder friendly, but it puts us in this weird spot where things just like move at a glacial pace. Yeah. The thing that strikes me is that if we're working with somebody in their owner operator and they're trying to run their business and they're growing their business and they're, we've, we have other deals like this where it's, Hey, I'm, we're launching a new part of our product. Let's pick up the conversation next quarter or, you know, next month. And, and that's okay. Those, I mean, obviously those aren't under LOI or anything, but still like once an LOI is signed, I feel like it, we should include a schedule of some sort around it. Cause I think after 30 days, if there's like a point that we don't have certain things or I don't know, it's hard to know because every business is a little bit of a snowflake in terms of what we'll need and what arises. Cause do we need, do we have all written contracts? Does this business even have written contracts? It, it's different for everyone. Yeah. And I'd love to contrast this with building a relationship with a founder over years is fine. And that's awesome. It's really fun to connect with people. And this is definitely a long-term game situation where a founder may not be ready to sell today, but maybe in two years they will be. Mm. And that's cool. This is much more like when an acquisition is going to happen or an LOI is signed, like how do you actually get it across the finish line? Cause it seems like a lot of them are just, you know, slow playing so much. Yeah. Lessons learned. It's been, I wouldn't do it again any other way. I'm glad I'm now that we've come full circle on this, I'm glad it happened how it happened. I would love to have a own that business, but this is, I'm glad we didn't kind of go down the path and then go any further because we avoided, I guess, 
they avoided it for us. We didn't go down this path and I'm okay with it. Yeah, I guess to finish the story out. So our competitor was very kind is we don't want to step on your toes. If it's your deal, it's your deal. Like we'll back off. And I was just like, in our minds, or at least in my mind, the deal was dead. So it's, it was already dead. We weren't like competitive. We weren't stepping on each other's toes. So I was just no. like, I wish you the best, you know, good luck. Hopefully it you know, works out for you. And that's how cool this space is. I got to say, that's awesome to chirk the intelligence around and understanding like what happened in a prior negotiation. That's helpful. But I, I appreciate that people are at least would even offer something like that. It's not so cutthroat as the regular PE world. Yeah, I thought it was extraordinarily kind. And I guess it is like a small space. It's crazy. Uh, a competitor that we know was competing for a deal like across the world with us. I guess that is just the reality of internet-based businesses. So cool. That's the part I love. Yeah. It's a small world, right? It's not that big if you remove geography. Speaking of which, you have any other internet news that are popping off on Twitter? So the big one, it sounds ridiculous. I don't know if you've heard anything about this, but Constitution Dow, the auction happened last night. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did they get it? So we did not get it. Oh, I we, participated. Right. <laughs> nice. So the situation, uh, just for some backstory, one of the 11 copies of the constitution went up for sale with Sotheby's and the estimated price was around 20 million. And the auction happened last night, roughly a week ago, some folks on Twitter's, wouldn't it be cool if we raised a bunch of money in a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization and bought it. And so nothing like this has ever happened before. And the goal was to raise 20 million. Uh, they did it. They raised over 40 million in this, like, you basically just connect your Ethereum wallet and you give them money. And it was really like slick process. So nothing like this of this scale has ever happened before where it's like a crowdfunding with crypto of this pace. And so 40 plus million. Uh, the auction happened last night. I watched it. It ended it. It started at 30. It went for 41. And it was really unclear. I guess I'd never watched one of these like high-end art auctions before, hmm. but it's just people taking phone calls and being like, all right, we bid. And so it doesn't say like, all right, winner is Constitution Dow. So we thought we won because I knew there's at least 40 million in the Dow, but apparently with fees and all this stuff, we didn't have enough money. So someone outbid us. And the little intricacies there of Sotheby's required all the Ethereum to be turned into cash at like 6 a.m. that morning. So there was no ability for some wealthy whale to be like, I'll backstop you. You need 10 more million dollars. Are you covered? Uh, so though we just you know kind of got screwed where maybe the counterparty knew how much money we had. And then as soon as it went above it, there was no ability to bid higher and we lost. That's, is there any way that this story could be spun that like you can have the constitution at the bid, but oh, oh wait, you don't have the gas fees. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's basically what happened. Yes, exactly. That is so, what do they say? Foisted by my own patad. It's, that is awesome. So number one, really cool to see that there's that many degenerates out there willing to throw a couple hundred ether or a couple hundred bucks at this. But I, I checked it out. I What was the platform called? I forget, but it was cool. It was really neat. I like they had a pop-up that said, if you give us this money, there's a chance that you can totally lose it all. And I'm not sure what the intention was. Maybe it's more of a security thing, but. It is. So I could talk about this. It's the SEC. So technically mm. they couldn't tokenize the ownership of it. You just had like tokenized control. And that's some distinction with the SEC of, I don't know, but it's definitely bending, really bending to the point of breaking <laughs> the laws of the SEC to do this kind of thing. But uh, I think this is super interesting. Oh, the platform is called Juicebox. 
juice uh, box. By the yeah. Way. So it's Very super easy way cool. to just drop Ethereum. But I don't know what else this is going to tackle. If you could raise this much capital this quickly, like a lot of private businesses, a lot of passionate fan bases can buy out a lot of interesting things and then take ownership of it. And the fan base owns it, makes decisions from there. It sounds like the Green Bay Packers to me. So like sports exactly. teams, I could totally see this with sports teams. If you got everybody to, I mean, geez, if you think about what people pay for football tickets, like two to $300 for an NFL ticket to one game, one seat, one game in, a, in an okay spot. And so the fact that how many people, I think I did see that the average was around $200 per, and there was like 17,000 people. Is, does that math make sense? I, mean, I don't know the, the total of people that contributed. I would guess it's on that scale. I know last night there were roughly 10,000 people watching on YouTube, this whole auction. My math's wrong though. So it's <laughs> obviously right. 17,000 times 250, like an order of magnitude low on that one. But if you got 170,000 people to give you 250 bucks, it looks like you could have, I don't know what sports teams trade for these days though, but think of it this way. What if it would throw the decentralized part of this is really interesting the we talked about this on a prior podcast is money just going to rule everything though is there um you know i guess it already does if you think about it the, the the people that buy these teams they make these decisions they're the ones making the final calls but there are things like salary caps my brain was going to like, okay well, you're going to get like the new york yankees of dows that I, I love that idea though if if you could convert these to each of these teams into their own organizations and then you got 42 million to work with. You could field a team with a respectable coach and roster. I bet that's like the next step here. You're not going to buy an NFL or NBA team, but there's a lot of, I don't know, third tier soccer teams that you could buy out for like tens of millions of dollars. That would be pretty like fun a racing and interesting. Team? I could believe that if you were in a racing or something. Yeah, it's, there's just fanatics out there. And that I could, the next thing is for the nerds is probably films. Like, which is already when Kickstarter came out that I think the, the latest Super Troopers movie was mostly crowdfunded, which I don't know if the world needed to see or not. I'm a big Super Troopers fan, so <laughs> I was happy to see it happen. But yeah, I could see cultural pieces like this where you have really excited fan base. And if you can get 170,000 people to give you 200 bucks, that's all you need. 250 bucks, I should say, and get things done. Yeah, you have an economic incentive if you own one of these NFTs. So you could do like a CryptoPunk movie and everyone could you know participate and that would probably increase the value of everyone's CryptoPunks or anything along those lines would be similar. So speaking of which, there's been some press about, I think it's on Bloomberg or something, just these tanking value of the NFTs, which I think we talked about a little bit. It, it never has really made a ton of sense. I always love, I don't spend enough time on Twitter, but I, I love when people comment on NFT related materials and it's a pick of somebody talking about, the, oh, I just bought this NFT. And then they show somebody right-clicking it and hitting save as they're like, now it's mine. It's like never quite understood and still don't really understand. I understand what an NFT is. I don't understand the appeal other than speculative value, but it sounds like a lot of these NFTs are. Yeah. Many it's like the art world, but yeah, a lot of them, they're not productive assets. So they're not producing anything. It's just a big bet of hopefully someone buys this for more money than I did. And so yeah, trillions of NFTs. They're not all like super rare. Most of them are going to zero. The originals of some form will be you know, like uh, expensive art and will appreciate in time. The 99% are probably going to zero. Uh, easy come, easy go. Is that what they say? Yeah, I'm not in that world either. I own my uh, .eth domain, but that's about it. And the NFTs for me. Have you ever been a, were you ever a collector? Because this is what it seems to be geared towards or like the Gary V's of the world, the baseball card junkies, the collectible fans. 
No, I'm very much like a minimalist. Like I, I do like art and appreciate art, but I am not a collector of anything. I'd love to own as few possessions as possible. How That's about you? Wise. No, never, never. I, I was always the kid that wanted to open the package and play with the toy, not stick it on the shelf and save it for 20 years or, or whatever. I, I had a couple of friends that were really into that world and they would get tables at card shows and they were just very, at a young age, they were very economically minded. I was like, let's just enjoy it. Let's play. Let's like use the, <laughs> let's use the stuff. Let's break it and ruin it. Let's do whatever. But I think it's a certain mindset. It's you just are, are built that way in, in a sense, or, or you get off on that, or you get off on the trading of things. And that's cool. I really like that. But on the art side, I, I love art. Spend, I don't know why I live in a digital world. I spend most of my time on the computer, but I really do enjoy tangible art hung on a wall or I love sculptures. That's, that to me, I've, have multiple bronze sculptures that I have on my wish list, but it's just out of bronze. It, it starts at such a, a high price point, but I'm a big fan of, of art. Definitely got a lot all over the house and I bought some over, over the years and just collected it. But it's one of those things that I, that I feel like I, I can give to my children when I pass away and they have a home and they can think of me and associate like art does a lot of funky things. I don't know. I went to Art Basel once and, and it feels very similar to that, the NFT craze. These are the, those two worlds colliding where it's like this feverish, almost like Las Vegas pace where it's like people have funny money. They, I shouldn't say Vegas and, and Art Basel, really the same thing, but this like super high-end world of trading these things where it's like the things don't even matter, but the tangible art always, it always to me struck me that like people were spending money to make them feel cool, which if that does it for you. Why not? And you have the money to spend. I, I don't see there's, that's what clothing is. That's what I've talked to my wife about this. Like she, she bought an expensive purse once and we dug in she's like, I feel really bad that I'm buying this. It's a lot of money and it's just a thing and it's stupid, but I want it. And it makes me feel cool. And it's, Hey, if it does that it, and it's worth it to you, why not? So I guess that's the, the allure of NFTs it makes people feel cool. So the cool thing about art is it's not really spending money. It is like good art is an investment like asset class that actually mm. performs really well. So it's more like putting your you know capital, your investment in a different form that you can appreciate that's in your house. So like that form of art investing makes a lot of sense. And I think NFT people would say that their digital art is on that same you know spectrum that in the future, there'll be awesome ways to display it. I, I think they're right. I think there's digital forms of most other assets. I don't know why art would be different, but yeah, I think the vast majority is junk and some of it would be cool and really appreciate like normal art, but most yeah. not. I honestly thought about starting to mint NFTs just to try it out, go through the process. Like I'm such a, I think I've talked about this before. I'm such a, like a, I don't get things till I use them until I do them. So I was just, I'm not an, an artist by any means, but just going through what goes into minting one and it, I'm not trying to sell it or anything, but it, you know, would be cool to, to go through that process. So that's one thing I want to try out in the next week or two. I've done it. Oh. It's really easy, actually. I did it oh. just because I was like, how do people do this all the time? Yeah, it's pretty quick. There's some platforms that let you do it for free. Others, you have to pay a gas fee. And the ones that are free, it's like, it's not really properly minted until someone purchases it. Mm. And then it's like, you have to pay the gas fee then. Got it. So with going back to the constitution, do you get your money back? Yes. You could log back in to Rainbow or whatever it's called and grab your theory. There's some discussion of like, you got 40 million. Some people are going to leave it in there. What else can you do? I thought an interesting idea today was like, can you become like the NRA of crypto? 
where you like just say activist organization for crypto and constitution DAO is like a perfect name for that. Just turn into a <laughs> lobbying organization. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose so. But I'm going to take my money back uh, most likely unless someone has a really cool idea. So I lose out on my gas fees because it was all on Ethereum and a little expensive, but I participated in a fun you know, cultural event. Sounds good. Sounds good. That's, that's what's going on, on the internet these days. What's next? We'll find out next week. Till next week. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening.